The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Provoke Podcast. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the European editor, and I'm here in London or thereabouts in a virtual room with Arlo Brady, chief exec of Freud's, the largest PR agency certified as a B Corp, and Alice Cartner-Morley, who's the founder of Republic. Arlo is also chief executive of The Brewery, which is a growing family of 10 marketing services business. His background is, is pretty eclectic. Arlo started out as a geologist before exploring sustainability, consultancy, and uh, was then also a business school academic at Cambridge, so specialising in sustainability and corporate reputation, where he wrote his first book, The Sustainability Effect. Um, Alice is a partner at Freud's and the founder of Republic, which is part of the Brewery Group. Um, Republic's an insight-led comms consultancy, which helps clients um, manage their reputations by advising on strategy, positioning, and messaging. So welcome, both of you, to the Provoke podcast this morning. Um, now, Thank you. It's great to have you. <laughs> Great to have you both here. Um, now, Freud's and Republic carried out a piece of research recently, um, lessons from lockdown into the hopes and fears of people in the US, the UK and Germany into what life and society might be like on the other side if such a thing ever transpires. Um, why did you guys decide to do the research in the first place? What were you looking for? Uh, well, I, I suppose the easiest answer to that is that I was sitting at home um, reflecting on what a strange environment I was uh, operating within and thinking about all the things that were going to have to change uh, in my life. And I was simultaneously talking to our clients around the world through Zoom and, and uh, Microsoft Teams and what have you, and I was seeing them change what they're doing, but albeit in slightly different ways, um, you know, depending on the stage that that, uh, that COVID was at at that point. And I was thinking, that, you know, it's just, this is really quite fascinating how different countries are dealing with this differently, mm. first of all. And then secondly, I was thinking if we have to do this for a reasonable period of time, there's a fair chance that we're actually going to permanently shift some of our uh, behavioral traits and, and I think it's it's probably a good idea for us to start exploring um, from an insight perspective uh, some of those shifts that are taking place to, particularly with a view to looking at, at the consumer and how the consumer is, is going to shift their behavior mm. and um, you know I was thinking that sitting in my uh, home office with an increasingly large pile of Amazon boxes uh, piling <laughs> up outside the door um, giving me the impetus to uh, want to explore that. Yes, I think we've all, we've all got a big pile of Amazon boxes outside our door these days. Um, so yeah. you've summarised the results into to six key findings. And you, I have to say this is a mix of qual and quant research, isn't it, in the three territories you looked at that was carried out in April and May this year. So um, uh, not that long ago, but right at the peak of lockdown, really. Um, can you talk us through the, the big themes that emerged from the research? Alice, do you want to take the first one? Sure, sure. So um, for me, I think the kind of 
the, the, the thing that really stands out of the research most clearly is the kind of desire for change that the pandemic mm. has prompted, um, but also a kind of sense of individual agency around bringing about that change. Um, and I think it's the combination of those two which which is kind of most striking. So in the poll, we asked people to choose between um, should we reshape the way our society and politics work or go back to living life how it was pre-lockdown. And 70% of people said that we should reshape the way that society and politics work post-pandemic, which is a kind of huge majority. Mm. Um, and from the qualitative side of the research, what our kind of interviews and our focus groups um, kind of showed about that was that there was that that kind of desire for change was stemming from two different things. On the one hand, the kind of the pandemic itself was shining a kind of light on society and, and, and under that spotlight really exposing flaws um, particularly around inequality and around the kind of short-termism inherent in a lot of our systems um, so you know as I'm sure you can imagine like during our groups um, the um, a lot of that kind of inequality was symbolized by the um, by the exposure and the exploitment almost of, of underpaid frontline workers during mm. the crisis and that kind of became incredibly symbolic around the kind of unjust way in which our uh, um, societies are organised and how people are rewarded um, and then just kind of anger at the kind of short-termism that had led um, our politics to this kind of underinvestment in public um, health and the chaos around messaging um, so there was that kind of desire for change but also the moment seems to have really empowered people to feel like that change is possible um, both because we've had that chance to pause to reflect to, to look at that world under the spotlight um, and also I think really significantly because certainty is taken away so the future doesn't look certain anymore and that makes people think not only is change necessary but they feel much more emboldened about making it happen okay um reshaping politics and society i can quite imagine that you i mean that is a big majority I and mean, it does sound a bit like magical thinking and and, yeah. and idealism especially when we're at that point we were all very much stuck inside do you, do you get the sense that things on both fronts really are going to change as a result of the pandemic, that that kind of wish can translate into, into real change for society? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really fair question and, and, and a really hard question to answer, um, given the kind of unique circumstances um, that people kind of made these declarations. But I think one thing that does make me think there's a, there's a good chance that at least some of it will stick is that I don't really see these desires have as kind of having come out of nowhere i think a lot of what we're seeing is an acceleration of existing trends i think a lot of us were already unhappy with the tensions the the kind of the contradictions in the way we were living pre-pandemic aware that we were flying too much consuming too much that the extremes of inequality in society are grossly unfair that awareness was there but there wasn't that the same kind of agency to act on it we were kind of stuck in a rut too busy too distracted to change things to act on those thoughts um and i think the pandemic has taken us out of that rut and it's taken us out of automatic mode into a much more mindful mode um and at the same time, and I do think this is this is probably a kind of this is an analytical leap for sure. This is not I don't have data to support this, but in terms of whether that carries on, I do think my sense from the research is that 
the kind of the lesson that we've had in epidemiology our kind of our awareness of our own role and our own responsibilities as individual links in the global chain of transmission of the virus um the virus itself i actually think that has got had implications for the sense of agency we feel around social justice issues so i think just as we've kind of become aware that you know how i act what i do whether i wash my hands wear a mask that affects um broader society affects the kind of progress of spread of the disease i think there's a mirror in that that we've become much more aware of our um of our potency as actors and mm. the kind of interconnectedness of our actions how i act has implications um for society so i hope <laughs> that that kind of sense of agency and, and and potency continues and i think it'll be really and i, and I do think you know from a political side i, I think um that will be really hard to ignore mm. um you know i don't think the kind of austerity measures that we saw as, as a response to the economic response um to the 2008 crash would be you know politically acceptable so i think there are kind of reasons for for, for optimism that they will change yeah that's i think the good. other the other the other strong reason for uh, optimism for change I think is that we've got a unique moment in terms of the evolution of technology so if this had happened 10 years ago or even possibly five years ago mm. before social media um, and uh, had evolved to the degree that it had you would have had people locked down in in their houses and flats and, and all over the world going through the natural human process that i think has you know you can see bubbling up through these this research you know where people have been sitting at home thinking about their own life mm. thinking about their family's life thinking about how, where they work and then you know eventually getting up to a, a larger level and if you'd have gone back 10 years you wouldn't have necessarily been able to join the dots between what people were thinking in one village or one part of town uh, or a country and now through social media um, you can see the build-up in particular areas very very strongly so it's, it, 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 you can if you were a politician now it's much easier to see where this the center of gravity is mm. around particular topics and that's why i feel like there's more likelihood of change uh, as a result of this now because it's it's pretty obvious where where the where the center of gravity is where people are looking for that change um yeah that's the the i was thinking the other day actually if this had happened 10 years ago before social media and wide smartphone use it would have been a very different situation for everybody but yes that acceleration is really interesting and one thing that is definitely changing is the economy globally by the looks of things although i'm trying not to look too closely at it um you describe this tension in the public psyche between fear of the virus and fear of uh, economic collapse what kind of responses did you get here um, and what were your findings um, so yeah, so I mean, the kind of the insight I think from the research around the economic legacy is is exactly is that kind of tension between those two equally kind of concerning beliefs. On the one hand, the risk of the virus being so great that lockdown um, felt like the only safe option, the only moral option, and on the other hand, the fear that actually long term it's the economic fallout from lockdown that will, or from the pandemic, that will be its ultimate legacy. Mm. Um, so what we saw is people overwhelmingly supported lockdown. 72% um, across the three markets felt that present, preventing the spread of the virus should be prioritised over economic recovery. 
But they did that despite thinking that the impact on the economy was going to be the most negative impact long term. So 60% of people see the economic impact as the most negative impact of the pandemic versus 36% who think the risk to health from the coronavirus itself is the most negative impact. Um, any thoughts from you, Arlo, on, on what your findings were? There any surprises? Well, I don't, I, I don't think there were any surprises in terms of the results. I think what's quite interesting to consider is what happens now, to, to, to your point. There's a kind of a, remember, was it Bill Clinton that had the phrase, it's the economy, stupid, long, th- quite a long time ago now, during, yeah. one of his, during his election campaign. You know, at the end of the day, um, people uh, are concerned about a whole myriad of different things, but but when when it comes down to it, the economy and, and whether they've got a job or not, and whether they have an income is, is what seems to be what obviously is the primary driver of any any household. So the, the research shows that um, I think that there's been a there's a lot of positive legacy from from COVID. Obviously, some people have had a really rough time, but even those people who have had a rough time have seen positivity in the period of time that they've spent together with their families or, you know, they've been able to uh, see the environment around them in a different way. But um, what happens next is probably critical to how, how those, how long lasting those um, um, legacies might be. You know, if we spiral into a crisis um, in the, in, 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 uh, in, in, around the world then i think it might be that our institutional memory is rather short but let's see yeah, that's going the beyond is... the results of the research there clearly <laughs> and the other thing that was just really interesting there was and was the kind of the difference between how the two kind of fears were kind of experienced so so rationally people could kind of really talk to that long-term economic impact as arlo you know is saying that you know, that's the bottom line will i have an Ill income um in three months time in six months time and, and rationally people could say that long term that's the thing that's kind of um going to be the legacy economically social mobility impact on education and, and opportunity the wider social implications of over allocating resources now but but that kind of rational side of it was was for people crowded out by the the emotional experience of the pandemic and the emotional experience of the pandemic was the urgency of the risk of the virus today the unfamiliarity of the nature of that risk Mm. um, the emotions we had about the morality of the choice to protect vulnerable life now and so that emotion really took precedence Um, I mean that that kind of sounds like I'm saying that lockdown was an emotional response not a rational one I'm not at all I'm just describing the kind of the tension between the difference between the two kind of facts in our head you had one fact which is very rational but it's a long-term concern and therefore I don't need to worry about it now versus this very emotional um, fear-driven factor and an unfamiliar fear which is, is so potent as we know as an emotion um, and one, one of the just kind of country differences that really stood out here was so in Germany where clearly fear was a lot lower because there were so you know, far fewer cases of the of, of the virus. So actually the risk was just objectively lower. So people in our survey weren't feeling frightened. There, they were much more likely, even more likely to cite the economic um, impact as the most negative impact of the pandemic and much less likely to cite the, um, the health impact. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that, I think that just kind of speaks to how much that kind of that fear, um, the, that unfamiliar, unfamiliarity of the fear played out. 
Yeah, we've all had to have several... It may be that in the UK and the US, uh, the, particularly, the government has done a, a very significant job in, in removing some of the economic pressure from people in the in the early days, you know, through yeah, the, delaying the, 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 the furloughing scheme and what have you. I think there's probably, um, you've, you've almost got a artificial and temporary period of time whilst people are able to have a more introspective period to think about their own lives and, and, and uh, what's around them and then as that uh, uh, gets lifted you see them very quickly flipping back to the economic concerns which are already front of mind in in germany where they haven't had that same uh, experience and the third um, big finding uh, you themed together was all about the digital leg legacy of the pandemic and uh, the, the, uh, as we said it's highlighted the economic the social connectivity value of digital tech you know looking back 10 years this is it would have been a very different situation as we've said so what kind of what kind of findings did you have there there's lots of stuff in your research about yeah. um, again that those concerns about socializing and so our reliance on tech is even greater yeah um i mean this is kind of one of the bits that i actually think is really pivotal to the whole thing and not just in that kind of the way that social media has accelerated things but i think i think the kind of you know what we saw in the results was this um this appreciation of the kind of reliance of on tech allowing us to kind of continue that social and economic connectivity infrastructure uh, i think one of the german coughs said something like um we now see tech as system critical um and so there was this appreciation of that and i think what's really fascinating is if you kind of just cast your mind back a few months um and you think about what the conversation around tech was was about and there was the kind of tech clash stuff around privacy and um data and fake news but there was also the whole kind of tech addiction and screen time and pointless scrolling and social media conversation and this idea that we're just you know we're overusing tech and actually i think what we heard in our groups was that people realized that we were underutilizing tech in some really important ways um and and so it's, it's not that it's blinded us to the problems of tech we still see those issues with privacy with fake news but what it's done is it's it's made us reevaluate how it can actually fundamentally change our lives and i think here you know working from home is, is the key point and the changes have been really radical here so um in our focus groups, what we heard is a sense of um of how working from home has actually increased people's feelings of personal autonomy um, and we know from you know countless research that, that that autonomy is a key driver of human happiness so there's that and then for those who are locked down working from home with family um it's allowing or you know we heard just you know the kind of appreciation of that greater connectivity with the people who matter the most their families their kids um making us see how tech can help us to to live differently, to arrange our time differently, carry on working, but to put our own lives and that of the, our kids at the centre of the arrangement. Um, and there's, there was a kind of brilliant quote from one um, UK, well, not brilliant, kind of slightly depressing quote, but from a UK consumer, but she articulated it well. She said, I realise now how marginalised my children were in my working life. Oh. And the quote goes on to kind of, you know, talk about how she should never go back to that. And so I think the result there is this kind of reevaluator of tech as an enabler of, of of kind of hugely positive um, personal impacts. 
And how do you get over, there's some stuff about um, enthusiasm or not for masks and track and trace mm. and other kind of interventions, if, if you like. How, Arlo, how can comms help with messaging and, and persuading people that those aspects of tech they might have seen it as intrusive in the past, like your tra- track and trace app, are actually going to be desirable and will be with us for some time? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it remains to be seen as to whether people will see those as as being desirable. Um, And, uh, you know, I suppose as we've been in lockdown and spent more time focusing on the digital tools and technology that's available to us, I think there's also been much more awareness of the uh, of the kind of challenges that come with that. And um, track and trace I think in in I think I'm right in saying in all all three countries that we looked at was was not viewed at not viewed with a, a great deal of in, enthusiasm and, and there was much more enthusiasm for what you might describe as more analog methods of uh, of, of dealing with the the disease I think that uh, there's an awful lot that uh, governments and technology companies need to think about uh, when when we do the wrap-up of, of all of this in terms of how they go about um, uh, building trust probably through transparency um, you know they, I think that's what's missing in a lot of a lot of these instances if there was a lesson for comms it's that, that the general public is looking for a great deal more transparency and understanding of what it is that you're uh, that you're trying to do with technology um, before and we've heard so many stories over this period of things going wrong yeah. um, you know even to even today you'll have heard uh, you know the, the stories with uh, Twitter being uh, infiltrated um, yes. I think we've you know whilst we're seeing the many benefits that come through the increased use of technology you know i've been bowled over by uh, homeschool how technology has been really impressive in the homeschooling process i think painful obviously i mean god it's painful (laughs) but um but it's been really impressive to see how quickly my eight-year-old children have, have have uh taken like a duck to water to using the same kind of technology that um i would you know i probably wasn't using very effectively at work but nevertheless it's on my i wouldn't have expected my eight-year-olds to to Mm. lean into that and they have leaned into that but i've also become much more aware of you know the challenges of them flipping over onto youtube and seeing things they shouldn't be seeing and, and so on and so forth so I think that the uh, you know it's it's slightly more than a than a comms challenge. I think for the for the technology industry. Mm. And then there's other challenges, as you both said at the beginning, that are related to kind of uh, uh, social the social legacy and social justice aspects of uh, who's been most affected by the pandemic in in you know physical and economic terms. What were some of the findings there? Um, so yeah, so overall, I think um, you know, for a majority of people, the pandemic 
had a negative impact on their daily experiences. I think 46% of people said it had had a negative impact on their daily lives and, and only 15% said it had a positive impact. But then when you kind of look at the outliers around that, if you look at who was more likely to say that the pandemic had had a positive impact on their own daily lived experience and who was more likely to say that pandemic had had a negative impact on their own daily lived experience, what you saw was some, you know, perhaps unsurprising, but um, nonetheless depressing kind of increasing of inequality and polarisation. So of the people who are kind of most likely to say that the pandemic had had a positive impact on their own lives um, were people who, when you combine them, probably represent quite kind of affluent families. It was full-time workers, parents of under-16s, higher income, higher educated. And so I think when you think about those people, they're, they're people who... Um, pre-pandemic they were financially secure um, but what they were was time poor life was life was too busy and, and for those affluent groups um, what we saw in, in the research was actually the key disruption of the pandemic for them was um, was time spent differently because they weren't losing money they hadn't um, they hadn't lost income or lost their jobs um, and so they're spending time differently and critically they're spending that time at homes which have facilitated that being quite a nice experience you know enough bedrooms some outdoor space so the pandemic has, has had lots of positive elements to it it's made their lives kind of better in many ways um, they report higher instances of being able to work flexibly of enjoying the increased family time so you have a kind of a rise for an already affluent group and conversely the the group of people who were most likely to say that the pandemic had had a negative impact on their daily experience were a group who were less financially secure pre-pandemic the self-employed with those on reduced income students the unemployed um and and those are the groups that have actually then been hit hardest again by the pandemic so they're most likely to have lost income due to lockdown most likely to have experienced disruption to their work more likely to have suffered from mental health issues as a result of it so you take those kind of um different experiences of these already different groups into account you with the kind of understanding of how you know the existing inequalities and actually what you see there is that the pandemic is increasing that inequality and potentially further polarizing society mm. i think a lot of people thought you know as i was sitting there in my um house thinking about this research just as as, as this whole thing was kicking off um, I remember thinking to myself, this is going to bring people together. Mm. Um, if I had an expectation of the research uh, and the practical situation, it was that this, this whole crisis would br maybe bring people together and get, get them thinking more mutually. Um, and in fact, while I think there probably is a, a, a strong community spirit in a lot of places, I think that it's shown up the cracks in our society um, much more in a much more visible way. Mm. Um, and I don't think I was necessarily expecting that. I kind of knew the narrative about how uh, you know the gap between rich and poor here in the, in the UK and particularly in the US is is at its fastest fastest growing and most significant level ever um, and I think maybe we papered over that for a, for a long time and it feels to me as though that's really come to the fore over this period of time yeah I would totally agree with you it's it does it's it's kind of therefore to see isn't it? it's actually quite visceral how different people's experiences have been you know you've got somebody with kids yeah. in a flat 
a new garden is going to just that basic difference is going to have have to have such a huge impact on people's quality of life over this time and their mental health as a as a result it's also um, changed our perception of of role mo- i think that role modeling is a really interesting area to, ha- to, to have a think about because it, again if you go back pre um pre-crisis you and particularly looking at social media you would have seen that um we were uh, looking up to celebrities or conventional definitions of celebrities with incredibly glamorous lives doing really cool things and i think that, that in the main a lot of those characters haven't had a particularly good covid um they have uh, and the general public has reacted to their um posts in a in a in a way that's to you know you guys are living in a completely uh, in a completely different world to us and you don't understand everyday life and in fact we've now becoming we're heroing healthcare workers mm. and people who've had a really tough time those are the people that are getting really really significant cut through and i think that that's quite an interesting conclusion from the perspective of working with uh, with brands and, and businesses because you know, over the last five to 10 years, we've been um, desperately uh, courting the attention of, uh, of, of conventional social media celebrities. Mm. And it's pretty clear to me that now uh, brands and, and businesses will need to look to some of the other opinion formers that are developing in society. Yeah, it's going to have a huge impact on what we count as an influencer from that here on in. Exactly, I yeah. Yeah. Um, and then another thing that's got cut through, which is maybe a bit counterintuitive, that in an all-consuming situation like a global pandemic, that seems to have actually in- increased that focus on um, social justice, not just in terms of you know rich v poor, as we've just said, but also the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, it, it, that seems to have actually kind of brought it to the fore because we're all so much more aware of this uh, in these levels of injustice. What were your findings around? how legacies will yeah. reshape society yeah I, so I i think this is i think this is the kind of most fascinating and quite complicated bit um i think so yeah clearly we've got that kind of polarizing aspect we've just discussed and then there's this i think uh, as arlo just put it it's kind of you know it's, it's exposed those um it's, we were papering over cracks that we're no longer papering over um so there's the kind of the objective reality of that which those cracks are getting bigger but then there's also something emotional about the experience which is changing how we engage with those inequalities so i think the um something about the emotional experience has made people not just kind of more aware of those inequalities but angrier about those inequalities and more aware of their kinds of their responsibility in addressing them so i think what we saw was there was there was I mean, lots and lots of interconnected factors but the proximity to the kind of mass death and, and I think that proximity is probably key I think you know um, here in the UK we're probably more used to watching global disasters unfold you know in, in other corners of the world so being really close to this and it happening here I think that dialed up our empathy to the moment um, obviously the shared nature of the experience that we've all talked to there was you know at least at the time that had a kind of unifying factor, uh, factor. Um, you know just the, the the clear failures um by the government in in some some areas you know thinking about care homes and 
um, you know, um, and the kind of the preparedness of, of some healthcare systems and the, the anger that that created. So you've got this kind of empathy for um, for fellow hum humans being really um, attuned and dialed up. And actually, I think if we just go back briefly to that tech conversation, um, I actually think the the tech part of it is actually really critical here because I think that the um, I think that by kind of relocating us to our homes, making our homes our centre of gravity while continuing to work, allowing us, enabling us to um, to be workers, but be workers who are located as domestic actors, as community actors. I think that if that continues, I think that is what's kind of um, helping to enable some of these kind of more mindful priorities that we're witnessing. I think when you're at home and you're literally thinking from the point of view of being a member of a family, being a member of a community, rather than thinking of that kind of employee, consumer, commuter, someone kind of seeking social status by signalling to strangers, I think your priorities change and I think they become more personally driven, more values driven. Um, so I think I think to some extent that explains why you do see the polarisation, but you do also see the um, this kind of like the, the surge in support for social justice issues um, and and most interestingly the kind of the surge in well not most interesting but one of the really interesting things is the um the surge in support for the black Lat black lives matter movement um and I, one of the pieces of data that i found really interesting around this is the um civics data it was in the new york times and it showed how during the pandemic for the first time ever um after the death of george floyd the support for the Black Lives Matter movement crossed the threshold in the US. It became a majority position for the first mm. time, so more than 50% supporting the movement. And what's most interesting about that is where that support's come from. Because if you look at the, um, the numbers of people who oppose the movement, actually that's almost in completely stable. I think it's 35% of people oppose it now and a year ago 34% of people opposed it what's changed is the number of people who feel neutral about it um, there's been a drop in people who feel neutral and they've become supporters and so I think that's really interesting because what that kind of speaks to for me is that a this this act of police brutality which is in no ways unique um, unfortunately um, has had a much greater impact on on the moral psyche in America than than, than other acts similar acts and and i think that indicates the kind of moral impact of the pandemic on all of us as humans um and the, the kind of moral issues becoming more important to more audiences those neutrals becoming supporters those neutrals having empathy for this group um and so yeah the, the empathy and the humanity of the moment i think is a um is an interesting contrast to or counterweight to that polarization that we're seeing mm. I think there's also a real desire. There's a, there's a quote in there. I'll get it wrong. Maybe Alice has got the, mm -hmm. the right quote. But there was a, um, I think it was a, a, a quote from someone in Germany saying that we're, we're just desperate for something good to come out of all mm. of this. And I think that's a general yeah. human response which exists every, most places around the world. You know, it's been tough. Uh, generally um, and with few exceptions and we've all had to take on a lot of pain um, and we want something we, we really want to make sure that 
some good change comes out as a result of this. And I, it feels to me as though some of the social justice movements, including Black Lives Matter, are getting greater cut through and seeing more determination around them because um, so many people are looking to be able to say, well, you know, it was painful, but at least we got that, that and that. Um, yeah, and I think that you know, in, in in India is a great example. I think you know, there's a real, um, a really big push uh, uh, from a, a local environmentalism perspective in India. You know, everybody saw at the beginning of the the crisis the photo uh, of, uh, of Delhi before and after with the smog. Um, people have 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 come to a realization of of the the some of the local impact of these environment and they really want to keep keep that uh, mm. after coronavirus has uh, subsided um, so there's there's probably five or six things like that that people are looking for um, to come out of this as positives and one of the your final point is uh, individuals thinking about their own lives and their own choices and, and maybe making changes in in that direction, looking at you know consumers making choices about which brands they use, how much they consume, as you said at the beginning alice what what how are brands going to have to change the way they engage audiences based on your your findings in that regard yeah I guess, I guess for me again this is this is an acceleration not a kind of true change mm. um just speaking to that kind of you know the the, the uh the conflict we felt about how we lived. I think again, this is you know we've we'd already seen this increasingly broad set of criteria against which is a company against which a company is evaluated, um, and that desire for um, more mindful consumption coming out of um, the pandemic is accelerating that. So the you know we we see the kind of the attitude to companies and to consumption is consumers have for a long time they've been kind of reflecting on a balance between um the kind of utility and relevance and value of a product versus um what they think about a company's values and how responsible or otherwise they think it is and i think that essentially has been kind of amplified and and, and spotlighted by this um by the morality of this moment so you know we we, we heard lots of people talking about um you know um, to, to Arlo's point about the Amazon um, deliveries, you know, people saying, you know, I'm absolutely reliant on Amazon at the moment. It's, you know, I'm using it more than ever, but I feel terrible about that. I feel really conflicted about that because of the treatment uh, um, of their employees during the pandemic and people just feeling the, the tension and the contradiction between, um, between those two things really, really strongly. And I think, yeah, I think brands will have to spend even more time thinking about those issues in the future. I don't think that's spotlight on um, company values is going to go anywhere um, I think there is you know there's also definitely a role for, for brands in supporting issues and supporting causes I think what we heard in in both in our qual and our quant really is that consumers care much more about companies walking the walk living their values mm. um, you know it's easy to put ad dollars behind a campaign and to support things that, and that and it is important but consumers that they, they you know, they know PR from, from action and they care most about action. They care about how you treat your employees, whether you pay tax that will help us to rebuild after, you know, from the economic crisis, how deeply you think about your impact on the supply chain. Um, and I think that kind of interrogation of all of those aspects and the balance with which, uh, how they're then balanced against the, the value and utility of the product. I think that's, um, 
I, th I think that's key. I think it's fair to say that a lot of, if we go back to what we talked about earlier, you know, at the beginning of this process, people sitting at home, spending a lot of time thinking about their own lives and, and, and Zoom eventually Zooming out. Um, a lot of people have thought about brands during that process, um, mainly because quite a few brands have behaved pretty badly. You know, without naming any names, there are some some really bad examples of, of corporate uh, misbehavior that have emerged uh, over this period. And I suspect there'll be many more to come as we go through the, particularly as we start to shine a light on, on businesses that have perhaps um, you know, misused government support and all these, all these other things. And, and what that's done uh, is, has, has really focused a spotlight on the role of business in society, which was, by the way, already a significant uh, debate that was growing in, in, in public engagement. Um, and, you know, we'll have winners and losers. There'll be baddies and goodies that will come out of, the, out of this process. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to, if our profession, I think the public relations, the profession of, of public relations, I think probably becomes more important uh, as, an, as an element of the marketing mix because, you know, much of the last uh, 100 years of marketing has been more about broadcast than engagement. Yeah. And uh, in a particularly complicated world with many different uh, multifaceted perspectives, you need to focus on public relations uh, talking to people uh, engaging with them finding out uh, you know what their what their um, hopes and fears are um, explaining to them your values and, and, and positioning your company in, in that mix and, and I think we'll see an awful lot more focus on that particularly from the big corporations that have, have been mainly focused on telling people what they're doing rather than listening to what people are interested in or what their what their hopes and fears are mm. so Arlo it sounds like you're quite optimistic about the role of uh, of PR and comms coming out of all this after looking at all these big themes would that be the case yeah I mean generally speaking public relations does where if historically it's done well in in, in moments of crisis um, for obvious reasons which is that when you're in a crisis you need uh, you need support in helping to understand the nature of that crisis and in this case um, we are for, for many companies effectively their window on the world yeah you know if you thought of a company as an ivory tower um, uh, we're the window at the top of the ivory tower that they occasionally throw open um, and uh, I think that probably we need to encourage uh, businesses to have more open open plan living <laughs> um, more patio doors much you know they need to throw open those doors and listen and and participate in society rather than being separate from it um, so yeah I do feel positive about our industry although there are many things that we'll need to uh, change in order to uh, to fit into this into this new world yeah absolutely alice what are your thoughts how optimistic are you feeling about stuff as a result of doing this lessons from lockdown research about stuff um yeah i guess um i'm really really optimistic about some things i feel um i feel 
I, I think this kind of this idea that people have you know had values that they've kind of almost been suppressing partly but through distractions and busyness and I, I keep thinking about how do you remember kind of pre-pandemic all those kind of memes and chat about too busy I'm too busy the whole chat was about I'm too busy to do anything um so I'm really optimistic that this kind of this period of reflection and of mindfulness and this surfacing of people's um, true priorities and values and um, the really positive impacts that come out of that, both for individuals and for society. And, and I am quite optimistic that they will be sustained if we can, if we can sustain um, large numbers working from home as well. Cause as I say, I think that kind of locates us in that sphere and in that mindset. Um, on the other hand, you know, just going back to your opening remarks, I'm just trying not to look too closely at the economics, um, which is, you know, a really mature approach. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, on that front, I think, um, you know, the it's every day at the moment, the, the, the kind of the unemployment reality is, um, is starting to really hit home. And, um, and that part of it does make me feel, um, yeah, very anxious. Yes, uh, well, I think we'll all just have to keep our fingers crossed that things kind of level out at some point from the from the deep dip we find ourselves in at the moment. Um, thank you both so much. Some huge themes in there and loads to loads to think about. So thanks for walking us through um, that massive bit of, of research. Let's see if business does, in fact, throw open its patio doors, as Arlo said, over the, <laughs> over the coming months <laughs> and years. And thank you both so much for being on the Provoke podcast today. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.